<laughs> Dennis, we're, we were just talking that this is a new experience because the uh, platform we use added video and now we're video face to face and you don't like it. I'm getting a little bit self-conscious and I, I feel like, you know, I'm like a parakeet or something where I can't stop staring at my reflection if it's in front of me or something like that. You know what I can't stop staring at <laughs> is BB. <laughs> well, now we you get to see to what this off, we are so going to have to turn this off because uh, she like climbs all <clears throat> over and she chews on every single cable. It's now realizing that every single cat toy I've bought since I've gotten her was a complete waste of money. And I should have just gone down to like a Goodwill and bought a whole bunch of just like old VGA cables <laughs> and computer mice and just like throw them in she some gets, corner. So she leaves she me alone. Heavy metal toxicity because she just loves like lithium ion. <laughs> um, Dennis. So it's been a winter. Even you guys had a winter. Yeah, it was crazy down here. I mean, it's 72 degrees now. There's not, you know, you have no idea that that just happened what Dallas Got and it. all of Texas but went through. I, I totally understand, but I love any opportunity that the cybersecurity in, uh, industry has to say, what can we, what lessons can we learn from this like preparation thing or whatever? I mean, that's just anytime something in the world goes wrong, we have to, we have to get our marketing edge in, huh? It's pretty, pretty <laughs> intense. We do. We we always have to make ourselves relevant, Kev. Whether it's through chess analogies or I know, uh, yeah. So I have a version of the latest natural disaster. So I have a version of this because we're not going to do a full shared secrets today, um, because our throwback episode with Nick Braglio is a little bit longer um, and really good stuff. So I don't want to like chop it up and cut it. I mean, we I think really the theme of that I think will will help a lot of people around. <clears throat> what it's like to break into the industry when you're you're either pivoting or you just for some reason I mean we all have faced at different points in our, in our career I think um, you know you want to take risks you want to take that next job that's going to really challenge you but it's always a balance of like feeling unqualified for for going after something or or, or something like that so I want to give that all all the the time it it deserves and not not cut it up so we'll we'll keep this pretty tight but I had my own real life event today that I wanted to ex to explore the lessons learned. And also this is like the only way that I checked that what my wife actually listens to the podcast is when I talk about like car problems that I have on the podcast, like six months later, she was like, I didn't know you ran out of gas when <laughs> on the first episode <laughs> I talked about, she, she's like, when was this? And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, like, yeah, six months ago, I ran out of gas and I didn't tell you because you already think I'm stupid. Um, <laughs> but today I had another one of those where we had some snow and I went and I cleaned off all my, my car. Um, it was, I actually cleaned off this, uh, this Ford Ranger. It's a 2011 Ford Ranger pickup and I got all the snow off of it and I, just leave it run there because I'm going to run in and get Ruggles, you know, and, and then bring her out to the car because I didn't want her to just be outside while I was cleaning off the car or whatever. So I do that. And I and before I do that, I even like turn it around to make sure like because there's a lot of snow. I make sure that like, OK, I don't have to do any shoveling. So I just turn it around. So I'm facing the mm -hmm. highway that <clears throat> that is adjacent to our driveway or the road that's where roadway that's adjacent to our driveway. And. So then I go come in, I get Ruggles, I bring her out and we're ready to hop in the truck and the truck is locked. 
the truck is running with my keys in it locked and my phone is sitting on the seat <laughs> to the truck right but mm. and i had just actually brought my laptop uh into the house like i had i had left it um in the truck overnight in the uh in the trunk i this is a pretty rural area so i wasn't really concerned about it but so i'm i'm then in the situation of like you know, I try a little instinctively to try to, you know, like the 1980s stuff of like, oh, do I have any coat hanger or whatever? Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, you know what? Let let me just hop on YouTube here, right? And like two seconds, you like Google and there's people like taking the antenna. So anyway, the point to this story is like it is insanely easy to unlock a 2011 Ford Ranger with almost anything. Oh, dude, <laughs> I the same. A very similar situation happened to me. I had gotten my car serviced at the dealership, and they locked my keys in the car, and they're like out in the parking mm-hmm. lot after they had finished servicing it. Right, and I was like, "Hey, you locked them in here. I'm sure you guys have extra keys lying around or something." And the guy got what looked like a um, blood pressure cuff. Uh-huh. And just brought it out. And, yeah, yeah they you just sort of like the peel. Thing, the yeah, wedge, they just yeah. inflate it and it presses now, the or pulls pushes the door out wide enough for them to put like yes, like the big coat hanger, but on the inside to actually just like grab the f- actual inside lock and, and unlock it. And I was like, oh my gosh, I had no idea okay. it was that easy. So now, if you take that as because your your vehicle uh, is is like an early two that Corolla is like an early two thousands Corolla, and this Ford Ranger it was built in two thousand eleven, but they built built the same truck pretty much from two thousand. They're all built in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's it's essentially a like late '90s design, whereas what you're describing is comparatively very high security to the Ford Ranger. So underneath <laughs> the handle to a Ford Ranger are two square cutout holes in which you can insert any straight object into the door cavity and push up the lock. Basically, like I encourage people to go on YouTube and just watch wow. for two seconds. And in fact. The if you don't have an object like that, uh, you can use the antenna off of <laughs> off of the truck to do it. That's that's like the number one thing. So I I do this and it's like shot. Yeah, like I watched the video. I, did I even watch it twice? No, I watched the video once and then went out and intuitively did it right. So here's this whole to me. Now I'm in this headspace of like, well, that's really informed the way I'm going to think about this truck, right. Of, you know, when, anytime I, I like want to go into a place or, you know, I'm coming home from work when we get back to driving to work, like I'm going to have to like take all my stuff in because I realize that mm. this truck is nothing more than really like security through obscurity. And then That's also different. it's like, I had the same risk yesterday. Like before I YouTubed, mm-hmm. how do I break into a 2011 Ford Ranger? Like the same thing could have been done, right? Oh. But I'm just like, I'm so I'm in terms that we've used in the podcast, I'm converting before what was an unmanaged, unknown risk into a managed risk that I probably have no solution to except for, you know, how I'm, what I'm going to put in the truck. Like, the my my risk management of things that I'm going to leave in the truck, right? So, um, unless I try to get super crazy to like make the 
whatever. And I know that like the natural ergonomics of me just like popping out of the truck for a second, I must have been, I must have hit that button because it doesn't auto lock. It's not like anything like hmm. that. And I learned that the truck itself, it's not like a, I mean, if the car was made in 2012, like my other truck, when I pressed that button, it would have unlocked itself to being like, oh, this is a UI problem. <laughs> you know, so I just feel like I learned all these like instinctive lessons from this real world incident uh, that just like relate to security. And I know how annoying it is to make these security analogies based on the last couple of weeks we've been hearing about. Hey, a 2012 Ford Ranger analogy. I, we will allow that. OK, that gets that gets a pass. Are you going to uh, of... plug those holes, perhaps? Uh, no, because now I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't want to. I, I don't want to lose my back door, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, when you described it, like the way exactly, just sticking any straight object in there. We used to I mean, get like birthday presents for one another at like Hallmark. Our mom would take us to Hallmark, uh-huh. and I, we must yeah. have bought like fifteen of these little money boxes that have like you know a key or or the dial lock on there. But the the code is just one number because all it's oh. doing is spinning around, you know. So you and have, also like, like you pull back on the knob, and then you can feel it. Like if it is like a three level number <laughs> thing or whatever, you pull back on the knob, and it like could chunk so a whole level. Yes, I mean, so, I just or, or even had. the first the. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean anywhere. Go ahead. Uh, I was just saying, like, no security at all. I mean, I think we must have just been breaking into each other's rooms and spiking the money lock boxes on the, on the ground just to <laughs> make those things explode in dollar bills and change, man. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and, and, you know, I mean, the first time somebody picks a, a, a quick set, cheapo lock, no security features or whatever, I mean, it is really just like you don't even understand what you're physically doing. You're really just like generating entropy with the torsion wrench and the 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 pick and it, it just pops open right like it's it's you know uh it's i i like the whole i i don't think that there's as much of a correlation i know that like the communities overlap um especially like at security conferences there's usually there's a lot of like lock picking stuff at certain big conferences um and i do find both of those things interesting i you know <laughs> Um, but I'm not really sure it, it's really not much more than an analogy, right. Of, of, um, I mean, these two things have a lot of similar, um, properties when you're building something in software or when you're building a physical security device, I guess it's, it's mostly about, you know, analogy than it is direct relationship, right. Is there, I mean, you're to, they have physical security features. Maybe, uh, you know, I, I don't know, but I, I, so I guess a lot of people like this type of stuff, but, mm. um, it's like, it shares a, a pretty strong community oh, in right, terms right. Of, yeah. of, in, of investigation, but, um, I don't know how, you know, I think it's just maybe mindset or, or, but yeah, when I did this thing, I did, I, I did connect a little bit more with that. It was like, oh yeah, I, I mean, am I, I am now going to behave differently based on knowing something through defect discovery, <laughs> you know, through, through this, uh, <laughs> this brief Googling, like, you know, uh, well, that's good, man. You're, you're eating so. your own dog food. That's good. I am. I am. I really am. So, um, did you have any, anything else that you wanted to talk about before we, we just talk about, uh, or, or we get into, uh, Nick's episode here, Nick's throwback episode. Uh, no, I'm good. 
I didn't. I didn't come. I didn't come prepared with an extra, extra no topic. Okay. No, no worries. I come. Uh, I, I I come with all of the uh, the drivel that that we're gonna load up front here and knock out. No. Um. So yeah, I think that the video is it's throwing off our vibe. We might have to cancel that next time, huh? Well, I definitely think yeah. I would edit out my part right there where I completely nope. stumble. Nope. <laughs> Dennis. Uh. Okay, so Nick is a friend of mine. Um, so maybe I'm going to disambiguate guests here a little bit for clarity. There is Nick Merker, who is the lawyer who did a throwback, who's a good friend of mine. There is Mark, which a lot of people confuse Nick Merker and think it's like Mark Nicker, which I love, uh, but he hates. <laughs> and then there is my fr- uh, another friend, Nick Braglio. Uh, who is uh, who is friends with all of us, <laughs> and we're all on the same Slack channel. So if it gets confusing, uh, no worries. But Nick has a really great story. I mean, he's he was a uh, I, I think as he describes it in, in the well, I'll just I'll just throw it to the episode and and we'll we'll sync up on on uh, on that after. So here's Nick. Nick, thanks for making the time. Absolutely, I'm happy to be here. So. You and I didn't grow up again. It seems like now it's like 50-50, so the premise is a little shot. We didn't grow up together. You did grow up in Illinois, and as I recall, you grew up in Clinton, Illinois? That is the place. Small. Which is a, a small town, even smaller than Quincy, and the, the thing that draws people to Clinton, Illinois is Lake Clinton, which has got warm swimming water because of the nuclear power plant. <laughs> That's more or less true. Um, it's a pretty small town. It's under 10,000 people. It's sort of a bedroom community for the larger, more industrial cities of like Decatur. And then uh, it's right really in the center between Springfield, the state capital, Champaign-Urbana, where the University of Illinois is, Bloomington Normal, which is like State Farm and country companies and a couple of universities, and then Decatur, which is an industrial place. So it's right in the middle of all four of those. So you you manage to set the tone because this is going to be a Central Illinois Geography podcast. <laughs> is it really? No. Um, <laughs> so yeah. one of the fun things is, you know, I've been having all of my friends that are roughly around the same age. I wanted to have somebody on who was a lot older than us that could really lay the groundwork for what it was like, you know, hacking PDPs in the 70s and shit like that. Well, I don't, how old do you think I am? <laughs> I'm just joking again. <laughs> this is the dynamic that people oh. will, will love about this one is, is uh, your, you and my relationship are primarily about giving each other a hard time. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, that's, that's fair. So I met you through our friend Dop um, and I would go on uh, and still maybe to this day, go on, take your Kev to work days where Dop with Dop, where he would take <laughs> me to what, to his office, whatever he was working on and show me. And at the time that I met you, Dop was working for NCSA national center for supercomputing applications in uh, Champaign, Urbana, Illinois. And so the computer that you spent most of your time working on that, I'm going to guess was like tungsten, <laughs> like what, some supercomputer that, um, you know, NCSA had built and you were uh, doing network engineering for NCSA supercomputing applications. Yeah, so, I did. I did some of that work. So I started there and I started there right after DOP. Actually, I met him in 2000 and Trent oh, okay. at the same time. Um, I was running a regional broadband ISP and they were a co-location customer. Trent just showed up one day um, 
with a like a carload of servers and wanted to put them in because he was unhappy with this oh. other provider. And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so Dop you actually there. met Trent first, who is is in our network as a Quincy kid, and he was uh, running a company, User Active, at the time that had some servers and things. So that's that's actually the initial connection. Yep, that's how I met, and that's how I cool. met Dop, and they invited me to a tailgate. Um, and then when I showed up with two tall cans in my jean jacket, I think that, that I was like in the group at that point. Okay. <laughs> cause I, cause Perfect. they had a keg, but I didn't know. So I showed up with two tall cans, of like, you know, rot gut beer. That makes sense. And, I, and actually that is the, the, um, all these, it's the backbone of our relationship. Uh, <laughs> because I, I was probably more on systems and security side of things. You were more when I met you on network engineering backbone side of things, but we had both come from that ISP where you got to just do everything as like a small town ISP, you know? So, so we had that, that shared history that some of the other guys didn't have. And I think, I, I don't know. My my assessment is I was less annoying to you than other uh, like Unix and systems people because I understood a little bit about networking. <laughs> no, you were so. you weren't annoying to me at all. And actually, I think one of the initial reasons that I gave you so much hell is because I was I was frankly I was a tad bit jealous of your um your architect title that you had at that cars.com place or wherever it was classified ventures. or whatever. Right. So you immediately started renegotiating your, your contract at work for, well, I immediately started poking at you to see how much you really knew because at the time my identity was very closely tied to how I valued my skill level. Um, and I was like, oh, and and so basically I had to, I had to alpha dog challenge everyone. But then I realized within the first like three minutes, I'm like, oh, this guy's cool. So sh- <laughs> shouldn't give him hell. Which, I mean, position in life, if if you were living in Chicago in the dot com boom, you would have, you would have been, uh, you know, ticking those boxes a lot faster, which is what I did. Right. So, yeah. you know, when coming from a small town in Illinois and go, moving to Chicago, and then you meet like two people and you, you get a job you know, trying to save dot coms in, in the failing bubble burst or something like that. So that was my path to the architect title. What what was yours? Like, so, so how did you get started even in internet service provider world? And you, were you a computer kid? Is that where it came from? Or maybe you can give us the, the backstory from, from the beginning. Yeah, this is quite a journey. So I hope we've got time um, because it's, it's winding and strange, um, much like everything else about me. The, so basically when I was young, my mother and my grandfather, my mother's side bought a, um, like a last generation Texas instrument computer computer. Like you plugged it into the TV. It had like trash a 80 or something like that. Yeah. It had, a, it had a, uh, cassette drive and I played sewer mania and learned some basic. And I went to what my, what my friends all call, well, I'm not going to say what they called it, but they basically called it fat kid science camp. <laughs> um, because I went to like the gifted program stuff in the, in the summers. And one of those summers is, uh, was like learning Apple basic. Mm-hmm. So we're talking like, you know, mid eighties at this point. And I was probably third or fourth grade, something like that. And I piddled around with that. And I liked that, you know, and, and it kind of came and went and, you know, we ended up in high school. My mom bought a, we never had the newest, right. We always had like at least one generation older. So it was like a, a, a Texas instrument something and it, but it was like the radio shack rebranded. Yeah. T- for, yeah Tandy or TRS. It was a t- Tandy. That was it. It was a okay, Tandy gotcha. 1000 and it had desk made on it, 
which right. was like a wrapper around DOS. Yeah, yeah, like a, a a weird windowing. Like it was, it would go in resident memory, and you could like tab or not tab, but you could like switch between different views or whatever. Yeah, it was a very burn up early. all your conventional memory, so you couldn't do anything else. Yeah, yes, basically. Um, so it was sort of the competitor to Windows three one, I think. Prior yeah, three zero or three one. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's what I, you know, I typed all my papers on. Had dot matrix printer, and I did a little bit of basic programming in in high school, but. What I really learned how to do was um, pirate other people's uh, work. They put I figured out the network drive mappings. It was all n- network based, uh-huh. um, and so rather than actually learn how to do what the assignment was trying to teach me to do, I ganked the books, the the network books, out of the he was the computer science teacher's uh, office, and I read the I read the manuals. <laughs> which is probably oh, arguably more work nice. than actually learning basic. And so I figured out how to get into other people's drive mappings and take their work. So I didn't have to do it. Gotcha. Um, and so I know enough about basic and programming to sort of be dangerous, but it was never my thing. And so that was kind of the, the very entry level point. And then, you know, really I didn't, that was just a means to an end. Like I didn't really, I wasn't a computer geek kid. Like it was like, this is a tool that I can use to make my life easier. And all mm-hmm. I really wanted to do was be an artist and ride a skateboard. Right. Which is really not that different from today, but like, uh, you know, so I kind of went in and out and it was, you know, computer stuff was just not really popular then in the, in the er- very early nineties. Um, yeah. They were just standalone things that like you said, type papers do th- until, you know, connectivity came that was the evolution, right? That was the- right. It was absolutely the evolution. And so I'm in college. I start college and I get, you know, uh, my, my longtime friend. Well, actually, let me take a step back. So I have this friend that I grew up with, known since kindergarten. We've been friends forever. I lived with him in college. Um, but we both lived in Clinton for the first handful of years of our university studies um, mm-hmm. for various reasons. Um, and it was close enough, right? You know, we went to uh Illinois State University was 30 minute drive. So in Bloomington. Yeah, in, in Bloomington Normal. And so no big deal. And so he got me into playing games. And um we wanted to play, I believe it was the original Doom. And so he had cobbled together his own computer and he had a bunch of mixed mass parts for a couple more. And so we sat down, him and my cousin and um myself sat down and just started figuring out hardware, like how to mm-hmm. put, put things together and make them work. And this is back Legos, know, like don't push it too hard, but see if it fits here kind of stuff. Right. And then learning and then learning the IRQ settings and the jumpers and all of that stuff. You know, we're talking like setting up your 9,600 baud modem right. kind of thing. So, so again, I, this is, I love doing this part is where I jump in and I explain old technology. I almost did it on the cassette tape thing, but I let that one slide. But IRQs, like in this, in this day and age, you, you had a limited a number of hardware interrupts where some piece of hardware could get attention of the operating system because the operating system were like super single threaded, like very hard to, you know, basically it had to do this little breakout to get attention on something so something like the modem on your computer needed to have a dedicated interrupt so that the modem could get attention of the operating system so the the software that was running could could do something with the modem input or something like that right yep absolutely and they were the by and large that was the most difficult thing to learn how to do right because it was really Mm -hmm. cryptic the documentation was either non-existent and or it didn't you know it wasn't clear 
And there was no Google, like there were no search right. engines. You, if and, you were really lucky and you already had something set up, you could go to news groups. And and the problem with getting hand-me-down parts is some of the cheap ones there were starting to become like software driven, right? So you yep. even needed it, you know, like there was no hardware interrupt to be had. So you had to just run a piece, another driver. It's, yeah, it was a nightmare. Yeah, it was no fun. And so we figured out how to do that. And we eventually cobbled together three machines and he my my college roommate although not at the time wasn't my my old friend somehow acquired a handful of 10 base 2 networking cards mm-hmm. um and some cabling so ethernet but coax connected ethernet is correct two. yeah like a bus network mm-hmm. and that was the that was the very interesting part to me like i didn't really care about the computer bits i cared about how they talked to each other yeah. Um, and that was one of the reasons that we, you know, we were doing all these things so we could, could network and play Doom um, over mm-hmm. IPX, which is a sort of a legacy routed protocol that you know used to. It run was a lot supposed of to be routed, but it was so bad at routing that <laughs> yeah. people only ever used it as a broadcast protocol. So it was, I think it was Microsoft, but Internet Packet Exchange. Like, thank God that Novell it didn't, it was it didn't be. Oh, Novell, yeah. Thank yeah. God it didn't beat IP like actual yeah. IPs. <laughs> so, so uh, interesting uh, sidebar that 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 friend of mine um, that had the computers while we were in college, he was very much in favor and and vocal about converting the internet over to IPX. Um, <laughs> sort of so like how I would could share your hard drives. Yeah. No, I mean I had to route IPX, so I mean it's it's definitely oh, painful. Man. But it, but anyway, so. We, we cobbled these together and that was sort of my first real taste of networking. And after that, we put, he had an old modem and we put it in my Tandy so that I could dial up and use, um, what was it? El- not Elm, MT, whatever the super old mail client was on, uh, on the N- R6000. N- NMH or MH? Yeah, it might have been MH. You'd like, yeah, you type INK, like increment, and then it would like parse the spool file into your file mail, mailboxes. Yeah, it was something really cryptic. Uh-huh. Like Elm that. is they, also Elm is certainly also a mail client, so that could have been one of them. It, it, I think it was MH, and then they they put uh, Pine on there after that, uh-huh. um, and yep. I switched to Pine. But that was sort of my first real foray into networking. And you know, I was going to school, and I was working at a video store, and I I ended up running the you know there was two node IPX network. Uh, running Lantastic, mm-hmm. and the manager was like a couple years older than me, and I worked basically full time, and so he didn't want to do any of it. So I read the manual on that, figured that out, um, and then you know there was a modem to upload all the all the transaction data every night, blah blah blah. So, so, so you were calling into a system that had internet connectivity, or was running a batch job to exchange mail with some internet connected server? So. First, I was dialing into the university using Slip, if I'm not mistaken. Right, and which getting is a predecessor my, to PPP. Mm-hmm. Right, I was getting my email that way. So from there, I would tell that into the RS6000, which is a big IBM AIX Unix machine, mm-hmm. and I could use Pine. Um, right. And they had some other things. They had some MUDs and some other stuff in there, too, which is a text-based game that was awful. <laughs> um, and And so, you know, that was sort of that. And then I figured out that a guy in town had a six line wildcat bbs so for those oh. that don't know a bbs is a it's like a bulletin board system so it's, it's kind of like you would see now a forum except for very cryptic and all mostly text-based and so i would dial into that because it was local right mm-hmm. it was a it was a, a 217935 number which is the exchange from my hometown whereas when i was dialing into bloomington uh, to ISU, it was long distance, and mm-hmm. that added up very quickly because it was 
9600 baud, which it makes it painful to do everything. So I'm sitting there and I'm doing these things. And it's just, like I said, it's just another thing, right? It's a tool to make my life a little bit easier. I never really thought twice about it, to be honest, because I wanted to be, I, wa- I wanted to be a filmmaker, um, but they didn't have a, a cinematography program at ISU. And I knew that if I went to Southern Illinois, which is the closest one that I would just party out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I ended up doing um, some classes at ISU and I, I switched to fine art. Uh, I did, I did a bunch of other stuff, you know, I did psychology, um, which was, I pretty, came pretty close to sticking with that. Um, eventually switched to fine art with, um, photography sequence because they didn't have, uh, cinematography. Um, but at the time, and I ended up doing a film minor as well as, um, some of a minor in, in applied computer science. I didn't finish, but during that time, uh, you know, I ended up realizing like I need, I moved out of Clinton. Right. I moved to Bloomington because, you know, I was just sort of getting wrapped up in drinking every night and just doing the things that I, you know, non-productive things. And so I was like, I'm going to get out of this environment. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to finish school. And, I, you know, I kind of didn't do great at, at college when I was first there because I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And now we get into the interesting part. Right. So I, I go and I moved to Bloomington with with this guy that we had built the, the three node land to play games on. He and I moved into a house. And he was doing telecom and I ended up doing um, fine art photography. And I got a job at this, at this other video store and it, it, I quickly realized like I can't live on my own doing this. Like it doesn't pay enough money. And also it, like I'm just kind of Did like, you just like rent clerks in 92 and like this is my – I'm <laughs> going to be – the clerks. <laughs> I was I was working at a video store before Clerks came out. Okay. And ironically All enough, right. we had some of a screenplay written on that Tandy 1000 that is eerily similar to Clerks. Okay. Star Wars conversations, I mean, anyway. So, I move up there and I realize like I'm not this this isn't paying me enough. Like I got to do something different. And and um Anthony, my my roommate's like, "Well, we got positions for installers um like land installers um at this place i'm working and i was like you think they'd hire me like i'm a art student and they're like they really just need people that like understand what they're doing and will show up every day and i was like Mm -hmm. i need money so i'll do that and he and i were at this point we were a little bit older than most of the folks so you know i went to college my undergrad was like six and a half years long right because i don't was, worry, you're in good company. Uh, you know, I was working full time for the majority of it, and and you know, I like to goof around. So, um, he ended up getting me hired there, and they quickly made me um like a team lead for because he was already a team lead, and they made me a team lead for this other installer team. Um, and essentially, what we did is we went around to K12s and tore out token ring networks and put in Ethernet with some sort of bandwidth. You know, some they either they either got a T1 into us or they get a T1 into the uh, original regional statewide like K12 network or, mm-hmm. or sometimes it was ISDN, um, which is, you know, for those that don't know, is an older technology of pseudo dial up over digital lines, but you can go. Yeah, up it's already been mentioned in the podcast because oh, I was a nice. ISDN subscriber myself. Nice. So, you know, I ended up doing most of that stuff um, and I had a team and, and, for whatever reason, the, the, and I was right. And this is probably uh, is why I, you know, if we reference back to the beginning of the conversation where we're talking about how I would always challenge anyone 
you know, because my identity was tied to, you know, my, my, my skill set, I have pretty severe imposter syndrome. And most of it is based on what I'm about to tell you. So he got me hired at this place. And, you know, I'm in my very early 20s. I think I'm 21 or 22. And the guy that was sort of in charge, like he just couldn't fathom why I was there because I wasn't a computer science student. I wasn't at the time pursuing all these certifications in lieu of school. I was mm-hmm. basically this just there to do installs and, um, you know, and when the installs were low, I would do PC repair, or do on sites for uh, basically anything that the actual engineers didn't want to touch. So if there was like a Mac in the building, they would send me. If there was a, a, a networking device that wasn't a Cisco, they would send me because it was like, oh, give, give, give Braulio all the trash. Like, that's right. not interesting, right? We, oh, this BGP thing. Nobody wants to do that. Right. Right. And it, it, the world hadn't separated. I mean, because now IT is kind of bifurcated where there's a vocation of IT of people that fix printers and do these, you know, do installs and stuff like that. Yeah. And then there's like, when somebody calls me an IT person, I'm just like very clear about like, no, I, I work on software security. Like, you know, I like differentiate yeah. a little bit from, from not that there's anything wrong with the vocation of it, but it hadn't split yet. Right. So computer scientists, people that got computer science degrees were the people that were working right. on like building PCs for people and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and so he just, he couldn't fathom why I was there. And so Although I was leading a team, which was subsequently nicknamed, uh, they nicknamed me the king of the dipshits because they gave me all of the sort of ragtag undesirables on my <laughs> oh, team. That's yeah. And it's fine. You know, I can, I can make lemonade out of lemons. It's not a big mm-hmm. deal. And, and so, you know, I, I had these guys, but he, they, the, what I'm getting at is he paid me less than he paid them. So I was making, I was, it was hourly at that point. So I was making like a dollar an hour less than pretty much everybody that was literally, I was responsible for on my team. And so therein Mm. lies the sort of the, the wellspring of my imposter syndrome, Mm. because I was constantly never really told straight out, but it was always sort of um, snidely referred to as like, you know, why was I there? Like, I, it didn't make sense why I was there. And so I, I took that and being, you know, this is something that I will say I took from skateboarding, right? Is anytime you fall down, skateboarding is about, it's not about doing tricks. It's about getting back up, right? Mm-hmm. Because for every time you go on Instagram or you look on YouTube and you see somebody that's doing some kind of crazy trick, there's 500 tries that they did not make in front of that. And I'm not even exaggerating. Sometimes it takes months to do some of these things that these guys are doing. And so it's right. largely an exercise in defying the odds. And so my whole personality is shaped around that. So with this guy telling me, you don't, you know, functionally, you don't belong here. My initial instinct is, fuck you. I'll show you why I am. Right. And so mm-hmm. I went home and while I was doing my art degree, Every night I would study, you know, the Microsoft certification books, the Cisco certification books, the, you know, basically any documentation I could find. I just consumed it. I learned how to work on, you name it, Gandalf equipment, um, Lucent, any, anything, anything right. I could consume. I did that at that point because I wanted to prove to not just 
those people, but to myself that I can, anything they tell me I can't do, I'm going to do it better than them. Yeah. And, And so that was really sort of the, the inception of my networking, um, career was that. And when I graduated, you know, and like I said, I went to school forever and, and I just would take classes that were interesting. And so when I graduated, I had nearly two bachelor's degrees and two minors, um, because I had done that. So I had, um, my, my bachelor's in fine art, and then I had, you know, a minor in film and some of the minor in computer science, but I had almost enough credits for another degree in general studies. Um, which I should have gone on and done, but I was in the process of taking master's classes at that point. But I, mm-hmm. what I realized was I was getting ready to get married. This is 2000, right? And there's been a handful of other jobs in in the path of that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, consulting for ISPs and, you know, doing network builds and things like that. Um, and I realized like my wife was going to be joining veterinary school Um she was finishing her undergrad in animal science and she'd been accepted at the university of Illinois uh, veterinary school. And at the time I'd lived in Bloomington for a long time and I liked it. Right. You know, I'd walk into the bar and they'd just hand me whatever I always got. You know, I, I'd been around forever and you know, it was like Norm going into cheers. I didn't want to move. And I also didn't really realize that I needed to actually figure out like what I was going to be when I grew up. Or at least mm-hmm. it was about to get serious because I was supporting someone other than myself at that point. And so right. investing she, so that she could soon support you and you could like retire early. <laughs> in theory. <laughs> um, and so the, I realized like, oh, I'm going to start looking for art jobs. And so I start going around and I'd done a bunch of graphic design work and I ended up dropping out of the graphic design sequence because it just, it was too, I didn't like other people telling me like how to make my art. So I was like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that. So, but I was looking because I was fairly good at it. And so um, I was looking around and I was like, man, these jobs, like they're literally 50% of what I'm already making. Like I, it would be a, it would be a 50% pay cut to go get oh, a job on, in on my the art side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, cause I was already making not, not stellar, but like decent money, especially for central Illinois. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I'm living pretty fat on this. I could probably just like keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the time when I, when I realized like, okay, well, I guess this is just what I'm going to do now. Um, because I was already doing it full time and the, the sort of harsh realization that being a creative professional is very, very hard. Um, especially in, uh, an area, you know, I mean, I don't want to call it rural, but it isn't Chicago, you know, right. and it's not you know, San Francisco, the jobs are few and far between and they, they don't pay great in that field. So, and a lot of those jobs are kind of boring in the sense of like going to, you know, an insurance company every day and just checking the boxes on whatever tickets right. are open. Or whatever. There's yeah. very little creative freedom. Yeah. And, and, and I need that. Like, and I realized like, if I'm going to have creative freedom, it's just going to have to be on my own time. Right. And and so I, I I just decided, and I told my wife, I was like, "Well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep doing this." Mm-hmm. And she's like, "Are you gonna graduate?" I'm like, "Oh yeah, I guess I should probably apply for graduation because I never did. I was mad because it cost thirty dollars to apply for graduation. <laughs> I was like, I'm not paying that thirty bucks. I already have all my money, but mm-hmm. I ended up doing it because I wanted the degree to hang on the wall. So, um, I so I have, you know, I that's that's kind of how it got started. And, and and I was working at the time 
I had done a couple stints at, you know, in some enterprises um, and their security teams. And I worked at, you know, I worked at State Farm in their, in their very early security team. I was one of the only non-State Farm employees. So that's kind of an, that's, that's a point I want to zero in on. The transition from, you know, IT installing, knowing about computers, knowing a little bit about local area networking and internet working. What was your first introduction to security or what was your first work thing with security or how did that come to be? So the first thing with security is that my roommate and I were always very interested in it. And so we were, you know, we ran BSD systems at home and I was constantly getting like old gear out of garbage of places and like seeing if I could install NetBSD on it, stuff yeah, it like ran that. on anything. Yeah. It, it did. Awesome. <laughs> it, it ran on anything. And so I was learning that. And then, you know, what originally came from is we had a, a dedicated dial-up line in our house and we had to figure out how to share that. And oh, so he yeah. largely sat down and figured out how to do um, masquerading. I think we originally did it on so BSD. Linux, Linux think, IP mask. I think it was originally BSD and then we moved it to Slackware Linux okay. um, because there was better driver support for one of the ethernet cards mm-hmm. that we had or something. And so we did that and then, you know, figured out like, well, if we're going to masquerade, um, what else does this do? And we just started playing around with, I think it was IP chains at the time. So might yeah, even been, yeah, Linux. Yeah. Might have even been before that. So we, we did some stuff with uh, IPFW mm-hmm. on, on BSD and then um, IP, I think it was IP chains. It might've been the predecessor to IP chains, I, but. IP change is the predecessor to IP tables. So I think IP right. chains would be right. I, yep. But I think it might've been the one before that. Oh, okay. I don't, yeah. This is probably, I'm, I'm jumping around the timeline here. This is probably no, 97 or 98. Mm-hmm. So at that point, we had this dial-up line, and you know we're using that. We'd written some software that would essentially toggle between our two accounts because the university would cut you off after six hours. Oh, that's that's smart. So when it cut us off, it would just flip to the other account, dial back uh-huh. in. So we were basically connected all the time. So you you had a little script every time you ran your 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 dip agent, it would move in the credentials of the other user or something like that. Yeah, pretty much. Um, mm-hmm. It was really simple. But it did a great job. Um, and, and, and so then we had heard through the grapevine that there was going to be a DSL, like an SDSL mm-hmm. um, pilot that was happening. And I was like, oh, do we have to get that? And he's like, they're not going to give it to us. Like, who the hell are we? And I was like, <laughs> I will figure out a way. And so being who I am and, I, you know, I'm not afraid of social interactions. You know, I'm not. I'm basically the polar opposite of most it people i'm an extrovert uh uh, not an introvert so i'm like i'm gonna just start phone tree like i'm just gonna call i'm gonna (laughs) keep calling so i figure out who gives the high sign for this and so man i spent hours um just calling through gte's um phone tree getting names basically social engineering my way into the right person i also had to do like a, a little sidebar into the university's networking people um, who knew me fairly well. Cause I had worked for the networking guy in the art department um, also. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I helped run the, the labs and so they knew who I was and I ended up finding out that there was like a pilot program that was really small and it was like all these important people. And so I just kept calling and I finally got through to whoever, I can't remember his name, but the, whoever approved it and He's like, okay, well, we'll put you in this program and you'll be one of the original people um, that get this, but we expect um, feedback. 
And I was like, oh, you're going to get that either way, buddy. And, <laughs> and so we ended up getting this frame relay based SDSL, 768K SDSL in the, in the you know, late 90s. So symmetric yeah. digital subscriber lines. So basically <clears throat> the, the upstream internet service provider, you know, you, you had a, a frame relay base, which is kind of like a, a virtual point to point connection with them on, on a circuit yep. and that, yeah. So they, they could tune down bandwidth or whatever. It gave them some, some manageability of, of the circuits that were separated from the physical characteristics of the circuits. Yep. And so they put an ORCID device in, which I still had until a couple of years ago when I took it to the electronics recycler. The guy came in and, you know, tried to install it. So basically, if anybody doesn't know how DSL works, they, they use an existing phone pair. And so the phone pair has to be clean. There can't be any load coils on it or bridge taps or anything like right. that. It needs to be clean when they put it in or else it won't synchronize. Yeah, because there was like in the pots, they would clean up lines with like bandpass filters and stuff like that on pots that yep. would kill part of the spectrum. So the DSL would just like not function. Yep. Yep. And and so, you know, he struggled with that and it was real early. So, you know, whatever. But so we ended up getting it and we plugged the, we plugged the Linux box into it. It was a Linux box at this point. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we futzed around with that and the driver was giving us problems. So we just plugged the switch into it. Cause we had, we had a switch at the time, which was like, I think I bought it on my credit card because at the, back then everybody just had hubs. Right, and hub is essentially a yep. repeater, so it takes a, a you know a frame and just repeats it on every port. Whereas switch yep. will learn the MAC addresses, build a table, and it'll only yep. the first time a, a host on a switched segment speaks, it goes into a, a forwarding table on the switch so that it doesn't have to broadcast after that. Right, so it's much more efficient. And at the time, it was very expensive, and I was like, we need a switch because I need to understand how they work. And so I ended up buying one on my credit card or whatever. Was it like one of those base stack switches? It was Was something. It was, oh God, what was it? I don't even remember. Those base switches are the the first ones I remember. It wasn't super fancy. Um, Was Was it managed? Could you like look at the cam table? The first one was not managed. Okay. Um, so I didn't, and, and I didn't really understand at the time that was a frust- point of frustration because yeah, I you can't really learn how it works. Cause there's no- right. <laughs> well, I just assumed all switches were managed because that's uh, all I'd ever seen. And so I didn't realize it wasn't. So anyway, we, pl- we plugged the, the DSL into the switch and lo and behold, all the machines just got public IP addresses. Awesome. So they were just bridging through that. <laughs> and yeah. you know, Anthony and I were like, wow, that's, that's crazy, you know? And so we kept a couple things outside of it and we, we realized like, we should probably learn how to like protect this. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first real like entry into like, let's learn how to secure a network. Yeah. And this was late enough that if you had an unpatched, you know, Unix or otherwise system with a public IP on it with no firewall, it would get hacked within a couple of days. Like, oh, absolutely. That, yeah, Absolutely. Um, and we were big fans of things like WinNuke and um, Sub7 and Netbus and all those little um, yeah. sort of rat devi- you know, rat pieces mm-hmm. of software. We were big, big fans of that. Um, you know, we, there was a guy that we knew that we would always – he would always bra- – he was one of the guys on my team. He would always brag that he had – because he went to U of I during the year and he came to work for us in the summers. He was like, oh, I'm on a T3 and, but an ICQ, which is an old chat – you know, yep, like it's been mentioned already. <laughs> like you could see the public IP addresses. Exa- so that exact problem with uh, ICQ has been mentioned on a uh, on Merck's UO podcast because he yes. used to backdoor people on Ultima Online. Oh yeah, so we did that all the time. We, so we backdoored his machine, 
And then we, whenever he would like get on and, and start, you know, he'd get on IRC, but he was also on ICQ and IRC internet relay chat was basically Slack. Slack right. is based on it. So, mm-hmm. um, but all text based. And so we'd get, we would get him and he would start, you know, mouthing off and we just went nuke him and he would drop off. And then 10 minutes <laughs> later after he would come back and he'd say, what'd you guys do? Nothing, dude. Win and that was ping of death <laughs> was basically the win nuke bug, which we no, did cover. Win nuke was a, uh, was a windows exploit that, that, uh, mm. It would essentially okay. just – it was like a – I think it was a buffer overflow. Yeah, on, some instability in the, yeah. the network stack or whatever. It would just send the right packet to – yep. Yep. And you know we had a little Linux binary that would run that and a couple other ones, some teardrop stuff and some – Yeah, you stuff. had your whole – you had a direct I, – I mean everybody had their shell directory of like <laughs> flash.c, windnuke.c, yep. <laughs> you know, all that junk stuff. Yep. Oh, we had all that. Awesome. And, and so you know, that, that was sort of my entry into security and then – from there, I went and worked at, um, I think my first real security job professionally was at State Farm Insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was a contractor. Um, and they offered me a full-time job, to, which I turned down because I it was not for me. Um, I, I'd been doing, you know, I, I'd been sort of on my own, like trusted to, you know, I had a company car. I had, you know, I had... I was trusted to sort of go on site to customers places and not screw it up. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was largely unsupervised. I mean, it just sounds too corporate, like knowing you even a little bit. Oh, I couldn't uh, take it, dude. <laughs> yeah. It sounds way too corporate for you. Yeah. <laughs> I, could, I could not deal with it. And so I couldn't stand sitting at a desk. I almost got fired my third, my second or third week because I fixed a print spooler that was broken. Unauthorized fixing of print spool. Yeah, basically it was my boss and, and the consultants were disposable at, in the 90s at, at the State Farm. Uh-huh. And so, you know, my, my boss calls me into his office and, and he says, uh, you know, I see that this happened. And he's like, you know, if, you, if you'd been here a little bit longer, he's like, we probably would have had to let you go. And I was like, what? Because I worked on Saturdays and nobody uh-huh. else. I was there by myself on Saturdays. And so I did it on a Saturday and I was like, well, it was broken. And I know I mean, I understand the inner workings. I know how to fix it. It was a very simple fix. Mm-hmm. And since I had admin on everything, it was you know right. easy to do and physical access to it. Right? So, no, I, like, I did. It was it was you didn't even of, have to like no. reboot the thing to set. Yeah, yeah. I had remote That's, access, but you know, I didn't have physical access. I, I don't mention this story a lot, but I had a similar situation when I was working at at Exodus. Of this guy had an Ultra Spark on his desk. And he was, um, I think he was actually my manager. It was like professionals, you know, we were all consultants, but he was like one layer up the consulting tree or whatever. Mm-hmm. He had taken this customer, like spare customer ultra spark and set it on his desk. And I hacked that ultra spark that was just like on our, <laughs> what, which was publicly facing the internet, mind you. And yeah. I just like hacked it to be like, uh, kind of cute about it because it had the sad mind. It, it, it was the time of the uh, sad mind D vulnerability, <laughs> and he got so mad. And he's like, "This is customer equipment." And I'm like, "Well," <laughs> in the back of my mind, I'm just like, "It's probably already hacked because it's been sitting unpatched on the on this segment for for a yeah, year." But uh, seriously, yep, similar of like just a little bit, um, you know, like knowing a lot and being like very capable, but not yet having the maturity catch up with you, right? Because they would, you know, I was 18 and they would put me on really hard problems, but occasionally I would do something that seemed maybe a little immature and they would like really, <laughs> you, you know, try to pull the carpet out from under me. So, no, I get that. I mean, and that's kind of what, you know, at State Farm, you know, and, it, and granted, it's a, it's a great place to work. Like it just wasn't for me. 
Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I shouldn't, I, you know, I, pro- I probably shouldn't, I, I'm no, not, you're not bashing. It just wasn't for me. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and so when they offered me the job, I just, I turned it down and they were like kind of dumbfounded, like, cause that was pretty rare. Yeah. What is this guy going to do? <laughs> I, I just, you know, I just, I knew that I didn't have the, uh, I didn't have the maturity to not let the things I felt like I was in a cage and I, yeah. I didn't have the maturity to understand like, Hey, this is probably a good thing that you got going on here. It just may not be exactly what you want. And so I just quit. And yeah. Worried about getting boxed in and, and, and knowing your, you know, just having well, a little bit of confidence in yourself too, that like, well, this will work out on my terms. Yeah. I mean, and that's something that I've always been, you know, I don't do any, I don't do many things that aren't on my own terms. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I just ended up leaving and I got a job right away um, at the, ins- the other insurance company in, in, in Bloomington. And I loved it there. Like it was great. They, they didn't have a position for me. They kind of just hired me in as like a Ronin. Mm-hmm. And I reported to like the remote services manager. So like the guy that did all the WAN circuits and that kind of stuff. And, mm-hmm. and I did all kinds of stuff there. Like I, I ran, um, I, you know, they didn't have anybody that knew Unix and but they they had pr- purchased all these sun boxes and so they were flying this guy up from texas to like vi files and stuff <laughs> and i was like i can do that for you and they're like you you know how to do that oh, i'm man. like yeah man i've been running you could like in in this time 1998 if you just understood basic command shell stuff you could make $85,000 as a sun expert especially yeah. with like commercial something about commercial unix i remember there was this, you know, Solaris architect where I, when I, when I worked at Exodus or whatever, and he, he was the, the classic, like had read the manual of Solaris, you know, all, all that stuff. But I remember a customer once wanted us to, to like, uh, install Qmail and he didn't know how to compile something from source. Like, and Qmail was only available as uh, you know, a source package. And yeah. I'm just like, wait a minute you're supposed to be some hotshot architect. Like all you can do is like configure a D 1000 storage. It's like, yeah, it was just like ridiculous of, okay, I, I get it. This guy is, <laughs> I'm sure he had major imposter syndrome too, because you know, he's, he's brought in as this like super sun architect thing. And, and you know, they have to ask this 18 year old kid to install Qmail. So, <laughs> well, you know, sometimes it just takes another set of eyes to look at something and understand it. But, 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 you know, for that job, you know, I worked on their their Nokia based mm-hmm. checkpoint firewalls a little bit. Ipso, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, the Ipso, Ipso based was a cool stuff, B- BSD uh, derivative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think yeah. So IBSD was like commercially licensed by a few people, including F five originally, mm-hmm. and then uh, and Nokia Ipso, yeah. And, and you know, so I did that, and I did some stuff. You know, just whatever needed done. Essentially, I evaluated yeah, a bunch of really player. early IDSs, like network flight recorder, and some other stuff was brand new. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I, I moved, I got married, moved over here and, and, you know, and I was, I had been commuting for however many months because, you know, that was, um, after I had been married. Um, and I think I, I'd commuted for about six months and I just, I don't like to be in a car. Like I, I drove so much when I was young, um, because I delivered pizzas all night at night and then I went to school um, in one town and I worked in an army surplus store in another town and I worked probably 50 hours a week. So I was constantly working and driving. And so that was pretty early in, in my, uh, uh, you know, in my after high school when I was doing that. And so 
I just didn't, I didn't want to be in a car and, Mm -hmm. and that hour long drive between Champaign-Urbana and Bloomington was just starting to grade at me. And looking back, like I was pretty stupid to quit that job because I basically had no boss. I got to work on what I consider to be all the cool stuff. I got paid pretty well. The benefits were fantastic. I had a you know a lot of days off and I had an unbelievable amount of freedom for my age. Mm-hmm. Like they would let me like I need to go and research this thing and they would let me just go to Barnes and Noble for like half the day and read books. <laughs> so it don't, was like don't buy anything but go go I mean they probably would have reimbursed me. I just wanted to be out of the office. Yeah, so no, that's what I, I did. It sounds like a great gig. It was a super good gig and I was like, I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, and I was 25 Mm -hmm. or whatever, however old I was. I was like, I'm going to quit. My wife's like, you got to find another job. You can't just quit. I was like, I know I'll find something. And so I was looking around um, Champaign-Urbana and I applied to basically everywhere. I applied at NCSA. They didn't even give me a call back. Mm -hmm. Um, And this was, this was in 2000. And I found. Seems like it's kind of hard to get a job at NCSA if you're not a U of I kid. Well, I'll tell you how that happened too. It was an interesting story. So, you know, I, I found this internet provider, um, and I knew of them because they were really early. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think they founded in like maybe 93 and, and so they're pretty early and they were the only game in town for broadband at the time. What was, what was the name of the, I vaguely recall. Soltech, S-O-L-T-E-C. Okay. Gotcha. Yep. Um, and so he hired me in and I took a pretty significant pay cut. Um, but I wasn't, you know, I, I did the math. And after like paying for gas and wear and tear on car and things like that from the commuting, I was like, eh, it's not a huge pay cut. I mean, it's still a pay cut, right? But I ended mm-hmm. up taking it because I thought this is going to teach me more than I will ever learn any other way. So mm-hmm. he essentially hired me in and they had, as most small internet providers did at the time, it was not a heterogeneous uh, environment, right? It was whatever they could afford at the moment that they needed something. Yeah, so, extremely like, heterogeneous. Yep. So it was, you know, open route routers, Livingston port masters, um, some Cisco gear, some like bay switches, a lot of sun machines, um, some weird like Linux based stuff that was like really crazy early Slackware. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so he hired me in. And essentially handed me the keys, said, okay, here's the forms for your insurance. Um, fill those out, give them to the other, the co-owner. And then, you know, you'll get a check every two weeks. Here's the keys. Here's the enable password. Here's the root password um, and the alarm code. I'm going back to Chicago because he had a house in Chicago and a house here. And <laughs> this guy and just wanted to turn his pager off. Like he, 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 he just wanted out of there. And like, yeah. Man, talk about trial by fire. I mean, I had to learn how to, I had to give myself accounts and mm-hmm. stuff, right? And I had to figure out there was no monitoring anywhere on anything. So the first week, I had to completely reverse engineer this ISP. And it wasn't just in Champaign. There was a pop in Chicago or Bensonville. There was a pop in Danville. And the Danville pop was gigantic. Pop uh, is point of presence, basically a little satellite office that could accept phone calls. Right. So, so a regional, um, mm-hmm. a regional area of presence for like dial up modem pools right, yep. and ISC and T1 termination, things like mm-hmm. that. So, and also provided some geographic diversity of, of bandwidth. So I had to sit and figure that I didn't even know those existed. <laughs> I found those <laughs> by basically tracing circuits. 
Um, and, and so that began my like, okay, I'm a serious networking guy now. Um, cause yeah. I knew, I knew BGP a little bit already from my previous jobs, because like I said, nobody wanted to do it. So they're uh-huh. like, hand it to you. And that's actually what got me the job. And there's something in your head that click, I, I think at some point of like dynamic routing is really just static routing with some program figuring out the, the static route table, <laughs> you know, like much, yeah. as soon as that clicks in your head, then it's just like, well, what algorithm is that thing that, that yeah, that, yeah, that's like, what seems so much more complicated than it is. Yep. Yep. It's not complicated at all. And most of it at that point, you could buy books. Um, mm-hmm. So I asked the owner, the co-owner that was, that was actually there. I'm like, what's the policy on like education stuff? He's like, we don't really have one. And I'm like, well, given that, you know, I'm basically brand new and having to reverse engineer this, like I would like you to order me some books. And so yeah, I had him seems buy like the me. Least you can do. Yeah. I had him order me a handful of, of, at the time, Cisco press books and one book like Ulysses Black on dynamic routing protocols. And I read all those. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, is that was the like bucket book or is that a different? Oh book? gosh. I think it was just anyway. called dynamic routing, but maybe it's on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Over here. I think it's, no, still on the here. shelf. That's a winner. I st- I'm pretty sure I still have it. But it's, you know, I call those jobs. I mean, they seem stressful at the time, but I call those jobs like train set jobs. And I was lucky enough to have multiple train set jobs early in my career yep. where I just had a, like enough freedom to experiment. You're like, you're going to, you never have any money, right? Like that's the common theme to these train set jobs. Cause if yep. they had money, you wouldn't be there. Like they would have hired somebody better. Than you. <laughs> right. Right. So you're always trying right. to do these little projects of, Oh, let's make our own firewall or my, my tra- best train set job at, at Exus communication. I got hired right before the bubble burst. So all these companies failed and then we had to close a bunch of data centers. So my uh-huh. train set job was for two years, I built replicas of paying customers site in data centers. We were going to keep open <laughs> so oh, that wow. we can migrate them out of defunct customer equipment. Right? So somebody stops paying, we go and repo their equipment to build a replica of, of a existing customer site. So that was like the best train set job ever. But these, these early ISPs too were, were great for that of like, I mean, are you going to download FreeBSD and install it and set up a firewall for free? Or are you going to try to find 20 grand to buy a checkpoint Ipso appliance? <laughs> you know, like it's, Seriously. it's just a huge, yeah. And nobody had 20 grand, right? My bu- Not I actually, in that market, yeah. I actually Not had in- a budget. It was rare. I finally got it out of them. I had a $2,000 a month budget, which was amazing, right? Because, you know, we... we Upgrade. You buy memory we, for one, disk for I, another. Right. Mm-hmm. So basically, it was a if something fails, we budget two grand a month to replace it. But if it doesn't fail, then I can I can bank it, right? In theory. So like when I needed to buy a redundant Cisco seventy two hundred VXR, you're buying, you're, I just imagine you buying like bonds. <laughs> like <laughs> oh, I had five hundred bucks. Let me buy a bond here, so next year I'll have I'll be able to mature it. Yeah, the guy who ran the books was very smart about money, and so he was pretty good about telling me like you can get this, but everything we bought was gray market. We never bought brand new ever. Yeah, right. It was mm-hmm. usually off of eBay, um, and then I would make sure that, you know, I'd test it. That's actually where I learned how to do yeah. like testing of gear to make sure mm-hmm. that it was, you know, legitimate. But that job led me to NCSA because, so first of all, I met Dop and Trent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had, we were a, a, one of the premier um, providers for university employees because we had connectivity, solid connectivity to the local exchange. So for those that don't know, a local exchange is where internet providers can go and create peerings or connections with other local entities. So at the time, 
you didn't have to backhaul all your internet access to Chicago or St. Louis or Indianapolis. You could actually go directly from a DSL line at you know customer's house to a university resource without ever having to transit the public internet. It went over this exchange fabric. And so because of that, people loved getting our service, even though it was a little bit more expensive. And so I met this other guy who was a customer. He had a business um, and they had a T1. And there's a bunch of funny stories around him. I consider him one of my mentors. But he ended up um, because so I migrated from the the point, the pop that we were at, which was in da- campus town to this building that's no longer there. It's old, a hundred plus year old building. And I had to do a lot of coordination, like get fiber put in and coordinate digging up the road and basically everything necessary to retrofit a 120 year old building with, you know, a, a data center. And so um, and I cut it over with no customer downtime aside from one port master that didn't yeah. come back up. So was it at, uh, uh, Portmaster three or port two e or what? It was a two e. Oh, um, so yeah. So, so it wasn't it that actually many. Physically yeah, was, had sixteen serial ports. <laughs> right. It wasn't a huge outage. Right. It was six. It was literally like sixteen customers yeah. or eight customers or whatever. Yeah. And so no big deal. But he was impressed by that. And so he said, "Hey," um, and we'd had a couple other interactions about DNS and some other things where I told him I, something couldn't be done, and he told me it could. And I said, "This is delegating reverse DNS." Yeah. <laughs> and, and he sent me back nothing more than a link to an RFC. And I thought, okay, smart guy, I'll figure this out, show you that I can. Oh, so, I mean, yeah, that's like the planning involved because you aren't control, you may not be in control of all of your reverse DNS ISPs yet, right? They, they might have to delegate to you. And then well, it's even a question of they can only delegate to you by the class boundaries or like basically class, you know, C and, and A, you know, of, of terms of where it falls, right? right? Because the DNS zones are are differentiated by the dots and not the mask. So it's hard to delegate a subnet within, within right. a classless subnet. So we were lucky in that we had our own PI space. And so we had um, all of the reverse DNS. We, we housed all that, but I was running a v- had, very old yeah. version of bind. Mm-hmm. And so I had to coordinate upgrading from bind four to bind eight, which anybody that's ever done that is cringing right now. Cause it was awful. And I, so I've I, done it. <laughs> it's pretty terrible. And so I ended up doing that. And like three months later, I was like, okay, dude, here you go. Here's your sub delegation. And so he was impressed by that. And, and the fact that I'd done this cutover and he said, Hey, I'm, I'm moving into more of a developer, like a tools Smith role in the networking group. My job's going to be open. Um, why don't you apply for it? And I was like, I don't know, man. I'm like, I'm king of the castle here is what I was thinking. What, was this person Trent or Dop or? No, no. This was another oh, okay. guy named John, John, John Dugan. Who is, okay, uh, I've heard. Yeah, I've met him before. Yeah, you think you've met him. He's a very, mm-hmm. very cool guy. Very smart guy. Um, and like I said, I consider him a mentor. He, so he gave me you know, the heads up and I, I applied and I interviewed and I actually, <laughs> I actually corrected one of the interviewees about some BGP thing. And I think that's what, I, but I was cool about it. I was like, oh, I think that's a private ASN. It was about the CMI hub. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't an NCSA person. It was a university person. And so I think that impressed the NCSA people uh, sufficiently that they were willing to take a chance on this idiot kid, you know, that was 27 years old. And, um, and they brought me in and and sort of that's been R&E networking has been sort of my career since then. I, I, I quickly moved into doing a lot of the WAN stuff because I already knew how to do it. So, mm-hmm. you know, the optical pl- platforms, DWM platforms, the 
BGP routing and some of that stuff. I helped a lot with that. And, yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I was kind of in parallel working, you know, in much more of the e-commerce space and you get paid better, but your access to like interesting technology is much less. So again, it's, it's like a balance of, well, also the, the econ the market for that in Champagne versus Chicago, something like that. But I'm, yeah. I, that's why I'm going down there and, you know, making DOP take me to work so that I can see these supercomputers and talk <laughs> to you about the backbone and talk to, uh, to Jim Barlow about the last incident that happened and all this stuff too. It's just, I, I was kind of, I, I was jealous of some of the intellectual opportunities in the scale of what you guys were doing at the time. Cause these were the, you know, the fastest computers in the world, the fastest backbones, new technologies. Like I was looking at the tungsten thing. It's like using MirrorNet. I have no idea what the yeah. advantage of MirrorNet over Ethernet is. Obviously it didn't, it didn't surpass gigabit or 10 gig Ethernet as an advantage, but super it was a, you know, it's a message passing interface, right? It's, uh-huh. you know, they use InfiniBand for it now, or sometimes they just use Ethernet for it. Gotcha. Um, so that's but, even, that's a, that's a layer two thing, not even a layer one thing of. Yeah. Well, or layer one it, and two or yeah, yeah, two and three. It depends. Like you can do InfiniBand over fiber and things like that, but gotcha. I have not forgotten more about that. And I was never really an expert, but you know, it's uh, there's definitely a, a lot of interesting stuff. There. It's what, ground. It's problems people hadn't solved before that you're like combining right. new technologies or proving a new technology has an advantage that it's marketed to have in super. And I, you know, we got the. I think later on you guys are at Insider or you guys were working on Blue mm-hmm. Waters. I remember the guy, the chief engineer of Gigamon, was coming mm-hmm. to visit DOP, mm-hmm. um, for like the latest like multi ten giggy you know, uh, taps. And I was like, okay. And so take your cab to work day. And I just came down there at the same time and got to hang out with like King Wong. And like, we talked about like, you know, I told him like the five features I wanted. And I don't know if it was that I also gave a Nanog talk about the features I wanted. Um, you know, and like I put as much pressure as I could and all of those features eventually made it in. So I take credit for, for stuff like having the VLAN tags as a filter option in Gigamon. I would do the exact same thing. (laughs) I told the guy first and I, and he didn't think of it before. So I, I take credit, but just just those kind of opportunities were, were not uncommon to you guys of like, I, I would never get to talk to, you know, the, the chief engineer of a, of a, of a very successful startup industry and startup company at the time. Right. Yeah. We got a lot of stuff like that it was very cool. Like to be introduced to that. And I took that social, I took that as seriously as I did the technology stuff because in, in, in our industry, it's not really what you know that creates success. Although you have to have an element of that. It's also who, you know, and, and who is willing to work with you. And so like the fact that we had, people may not remember this company called force 10 force 10 was a very, mm-hmm. very innovative networking company that got bought by Dell. What, like a decade ago. Yeah. They were doing like, you know, 500 gig ports on a yeah, chassis it, in like 2006. Yep. It got merged into that brocade acquisition. Like all that stuff became like a Dell networking, in, you know, thing on the back end. but all it, those, com- it kind of died after that acquisition, sadly. So. Yeah. We had their chief scientist come down and he would like, oh, just like, awesome do some stuff because we were trying to help debug some problems that they had. And we were doing things like V6 and multicast that like, they just really hadn't seen a lot of yet. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he'd come down and Joel was his name. And like, he'd come down and just hang out with us. He's a cool guy. Like, like I, I remember we, he gave a talk and we were hanging out with him at a conference and we had a running bet, a $20 bet that he would go over time. And like, you know, chief scientist of, of, of force 10, a huge networking company at the time. 
he had to come back and give each of us $20 because he said he wouldn't go over time. And we all said he would. So like, <laughs> it's that kind of stuff that like, you can't get that really yeah. any other way. I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the people first kind of, kind of mentality too, because, you know, sometimes we're working on very important stuff that matters. A lot of the time it, it, you know, the business matters a little bit less than we think it to, but those relationships with people and helping people get, you know, for helping people that aren't as experienced, you get to the next level. I found it to be like one of the most rewarding things of, of my career. So. Oh, absolutely. I'm all about the mentoring. Yeah. All right. Well, Nick, that was awesome. Um, I think we could even take this one step further into, you know, you're, you're just starting to, uh, to touch supercomputers and all that exciting stuff. So definitely want to have you uh, back at some point to talk about that, but this has been great. And I think really, um, I, I think people will really connect with, uh, with a lot of the career decisions you made and, 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 and risk management of your own personal growth. So that was awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to do it. All right. Thanks, Nick. Talk to you soon. Yep. Right. Bye. Dennis. Kev, what do you think about uh, about Nick's story there? Uh, I really like the story. You I were did, telling I, me before the podcast you love Central Illinois geography as a product of the <laughs> East Coast and as a, a Central Texas uh, resident. Now mm-hmm. you never get to know about Central Illinois geography. That's true, right? Like you think, oh, it's just Chicago. No, it's got a huge space that you have no idea what it's what's in there right Uh, so we really hit that hard on the episode you guys hit it hard i i the only other thing part i know about illinois is naperville that's it so Mm. chicago and naperville those are the two for me it's the same that's one thing chicago and naperville is one. Oh, okay well (laughs) um i loved this in particular like with nick setting up the story and really like talk just how he was revealing different uh, parts about him during during it, and especially like him rolling up and meeting your buddies in a jean jacket with two tall boys in the pockets. Like <laughs> my mental, I can never meet Nick. I've never met any of your friends, but I could especially never meet Nick in person ever because I don't think it could hold up to the mental image that I just have of him, and I don't want to destroy that. Uh, I mean, he he paints a great picture of he just paint, like, oh, he, that's what I'm just he's, he's a skateboard, you know, skateboard artist that just kind of got drug into this. Uh, oh, totally, you know, and, and like him, it being, does describe his personality. I mean, he is, and him, you know, him being the king of the dipshits at work and paid one dollar <laughs> less than everybody else. Okay, like his description of himself sounds like he is the main character in some Richard Linkletter movie. Okay, I, like I, just perfectly. It, I uh, I totally agree, and it's also just funny to look back to be like when we started interacting and and like hi, him feeling me out and me going like Dop, I'm not sure if you're I, I don't know if I want to go to lunch with because he seems kind of mean or whatever, uh, but you know, and then we just eventually just like hit the stride like talking shop about you know network routing protocols and stuff like that. So I you know yeah, uh, awesome, really appreciate Nick, and Nick has his own podcast out there right so um it's fairly new it's like us it's building traction it's much more focused on um networking technology if you're interested in that or you know maybe you're interested to the network security part um of of our industry uh he's got a ton of experience and is just a really um a couple of other people i don't know but they're they're also you know brilliant and and some great guests coming on there so highly recommend that it's called modulate demodulate it's on uh i think all of the major platforms and they have they have a website I'll, i'll 
when I post something, I'll, I'll try to post something about that as well. So, um, but check it out. I think the latest episode, this, I'm, it's not going to be currently the latest episode, but they just talk about uh, how how hard it is to explain the difference between a tunnel and a VPN to somebody who doesn't know what you're talking about. And I'm thinking about this like I know what those two things are. Like I would have a hard time maybe trying to explain it to like <laughs> anybody. Um, so really, I've I've been really digging that that podcast too. So have a good week, Kev. Talk to you later. All right, bye. Adios. <laughs>